OAN executives, quote, may have engaged in criminal activities because they appear to have violated state and federal laws regarding data privacy. Really? And those One American News folks seem like such nice people. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Fairmont, West Virginia on WEFR, Seattle's KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, No Lies Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites, Blanketing Planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com, now celebrating 20 years. I guess we're in our 21st year at this point, Desi Doyen. I believe that is how math works. Thanks, uh, thanks uh, both in advance and in retrospect to those of you who have helped us stay on your public airwaves for this many years and to keep blogging away at bradblog.com. Those of you, of course, who hit the old donate button over there at bradblog.com, much appreciated. Uh, well, we had some very good news last week from the courts regarding redistricting, specifically Republican gerrymandering in three different states, Wisconsin, Louisiana, and North Dakota. This week, however... We've had some very alarming news regarding not just gerrymandering, but the entire Voting Rights Act, to be frank, uh, in another ruling from another far-right-leaning court that could, I don't know how else to describe this, uh, a ruling that could lead to the final blow against the landmark 1965 civil rights legislation, the Voting Rights Act, if, in fact, it moves forward on the trajectory that it is currently on. It's not getting a lot of coverage this week because everybody's looking at uh, Donald Trump and all of his court cases and waiting for various rulings to come in there. But this is, well, frankly, it was a gobsmacking ruling on Tuesday from the 8th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, which has, I believe, uh, 10 Republican appointees and just one Democratic appointee on it. But this case will almost certainly head to the U.S. Supreme Court in very short order. What happens then? Well, we will discuss the entire matter momentarily with a guest that has been 
closely following the remarkable progress uh, of this, uh, at least up until now, uh, this stunningly underreported threat to the Voting Rights Act and to democracy itself, therefore. This is part of the Republicans' decades-long effort to dismantle the Voting Rights Act, and they're getting really close. They're getting a real foothold here, at least potentially. Uh, But first, uh, speaking of democracy, CNN's Marshall Cohen had a bit of a scoop, I think, this week that I want to take some time to at least get on the record here as we're likely to hear much more about this as things uh, progress, as they move forward. Uh, As Cohn writes, uh, in the wake of the 2020 election, the president of the far-right network One America News And I already like this story, actually, because CNN did not describe OAN as the conservative One American News, but correctly as the uh, as the far right One American News. Oh, good. Uh, The the president of OAN sent a potentially explosive email, they report, to former Trump campaign lawyer Sidney Powell with a spreadsheet claiming to contain passwords of employees from the voting technology company Smartmatic, according to, uh, to court filings. The existence of the spreadsheet was recently disclosed by Smartmatic, which is suing OAN for defamation. That following the 2020 election in which Joe Biden defeated Donald Trump and Trump and Sidney Powell, his, uh, one of his attorneys and others, pretended that there was massive fraud, voter fraud and or fraud via computerized voting systems which stole the election somehow from Donald Trump when, in fact, there is zero evidence of any such fraud. And, in fact, it was actually Trump trying to steal the election from Joe Biden and the American people. Anyway, CNN, they continue, pieced together who was involved in the email exchanges by examining court records from three separate cases stemming from the 2020 election. Lawyers from Smartmatic told a federal judge that the email and the attached spreadsheet supposedly containing the passwords of employees at the voting uh, system company, uh, that suggests that OAN executives, quote, may have engaged in criminal activities because they, quote, appear to have violated state and federal uh, laws regarding data privacy. The court records don't say how OAN obtained this spreadsheet or whether the supposed Smartmatic passwords were actually authentic. Nobody from OAN has been charged, at least not yet, with any crimes. But it came at a time when OAN, Sidney Powell, and others in their orbit were aggressively peddling false claims that there was massive voter fraud in 2020, and that Smartmatic was somehow to blame. Now, I need to stop here to note uh, that even if even if there was evidence that Smartmatic's voting systems were somehow hacked to flip votes from Biden to Donald Trump in 2020, uh, I should say uh, to flip them from Trump to Biden in 2020, and there is no such evidence, but even if there were, The only votes in the U.S. that would have been affected by such vote flipping by Smartmatic would be here in Los Angeles, Los Angeles County, where Joe Biden was declared to have won by two million votes. 
Because L.A. County, albeit the largest voting jurisdiction in the U.S., is the only jurisdiction in the U.S. that actually uses voting systems made by Smartmatic. That's it. For all the sturm and drang you've heard about Smartmatic, they don't make voting machines that are used in the rest of the country, only here in L.A. And by the way, they are terrible voting systems because they are touchscreens that are 100% unverifiable after an election. But even those uh, were in pretty limited use during the 2020 election here in L.A., thanks to COVID and laws that were changed to allow everyone in L.A. to vote by mail ballot instead that year. So even the Smartmatic systems at the polling place in L.A. were barely used back in 2020. Which kind of underscores how dumb <laughs> Team Trump was that they didn't even know that all of this uh, all of this stuff that they were saying about Smartmatic only applied to one jurisdiction in the Did, nation. I didn't know or didn't care. Uh, because after the election, Republicans uh, claimed that voting systems made by Dominion, one of the nation's largest voting system vendors, and Smartmatic, one of the smallest, were somehow responsible for flipping votes and stealing the election for Biden. And that claim is actually, yes, somewhat my fault. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> right. uh, why? Well, because after the election, Sidney Powell and others on the right began linking to some of my own exclusive reporting at Bradblog.com from way back in 2008 to 2010, detailing some lies that were told by Dominion when they purchased assets from a different voting machine company entirely called Sequoia, which is now out of business, which had previously been owned by... Smartmatic, a company then based in Venezuela and tied to its then-president, who has since died, that would be Hugo Chavez. So my reporting at the time, way back in 2008, 2010, was accurate, and it still is, of course, but Powell and others latched onto it to somehow claim that it proved that Smartmatic and dead Hugo Chavez <laughs> and Dominion had somehow stolen the 2020 election. Yes, it is as crazy as it sounds, but that's what happened. And the folks at Fox News and Newsmax and, yes, OAN, etc., were all too happy to latch on to this theory and report it as if it was actually true in the wake of 2020. And Fox, as you know, for its part, has already settled uh, the defamation lawsuit filed against it by Dominion for a gobsmacking $757 million last year in April. What did they have to hide? But that company's uh, and, and Smartmatic's cases against other companies and people, those continue. So back to CNN now. According to court filings, the supposed passwords were shared by OAN around the same time that Powell her associates and other Trump supporters were trying to improperly access voting systems across the country to somehow prove their false claims of fraud. The January 8, 2021 email exchange between OAN President Charles Herring and Sidney Powell has recently emerged as a flashpoint in Smartmatic's defamation suit against the pro-Trump OAN network. The email is not public, but Smartmatic revealed some of its contents in a public filing after obtaining the materials during the discovery process. 
While Smartmatic's public fi uh, filings didn't identify the sender or the recipient of the email, court records from a separate 2020-related suit confirmed that Herring and Powell were exchanging emails on the very same date. The pair's communications about the purported Smartmatic spreadsheet, which have not been previously reported, resurrect questions that have dogged OAN for years regarding its tendency to blur the lines between opinion journalism and brazen political advocacy. Blur the line, CNN? There is no line. Have you watched that crap they cover on that channel? I mean, as much as Fox News is not news, but Republican propaganda, OAN is even more so. And it's not Republican propaganda as much as it is specifically Donald Trump propaganda. Not that there is much of a difference uh, these days. I mean, and can also we talk about the fact that it was a news media company, so-called colluding or attempting to collude with the political campaign to overturn an election? Smartmatic has, uh, has sued OAN. Powell and other Trump allies and right-wing outlets seeking billions of dollars in damages for their 2020 election lies. OAN and Powell are fighting the defamation case they and deny wrongdoing. OAN's attorney has responded to CNN's reporting by saying, quote, OAN denies that its executive team, quote, may have engaged in criminal activities. As uh, CNN asserts here, this vague accusation is a clumsy attempt to smear OAN and to divert attention from Smartmatic's own misconduct. That according to OAN lawyer Charles Babcock in a statement. Babcock pointed to federal charges filed against a former top election official from the Philippines who allegedly took bribes from Smartmatic uh, both the election official and Smartmatic deny those allegations. But by the way, the Philippines, as it turns out, is a different country <laughs> entirely. And not that I would put put it past any voting system vendor, frankly, to bribe public officials to purchase their crappy voting systems. We've seen evidence of that in this country as well, if not by Smartmatic. But all of that is so far from Smartmatic stealing votes in the 2020 election that it's hardly even worth noting here, frankly. But apparently that's the uh, Smartmatic's own misconduct that OAN attorneys are hanging their hats on here. Powell, for her part, as you know, pleaded guilty in October to six misdemeanor crimes in Georgia's sweeping election subversion case stemming from her role in the conspiracy to breach voting system software in Coffee County and share that publicly. That breach occurred one day before OAN's president, Herring, allegedly sent her the spreadsheet, according to CNN's reporting. The revelations were surfaced by Smartmatic as part of an effort to convince the judge in its case against OAN that the network is actually withholding key documents in the discovery process, According to Smartmatic attorneys in a court filing in December, quote, discovery from the OAN executive team is critical to establishing actual malice because the OAN executive team may have engaged in criminal activities to further the election fraud claims generally and smart fraud, uh, Smartmatic fraud claims specifically. The company's lawyers further allege that, quote, discovery to date has also uncovered that certain members of the OAN executive team appear to have violated state and federal laws regarding data privacy, 
in connection with promoting election fraud claims. Smartmatic's attorney said in a sworn affidavit that the email exchange with the spreadsheet was among, quote, members of the OAN executive team and an individual who has already pled guilty to crimes relating to the 2020 election. That sounds like Powell. These are some of the pieces that CNN brought together. CNN has not independently reviewed the emails or the spreadsheet. So this is currently based on claims by Smartmatic. It's unclear if the spreadsheet has any connections to the breach in rural Coffee County that you probably first learned about on this program. The uh, county, like all of the counties in Georgia, used software from Dominion voting systems, not from Smartmatic uh, in the uh, in the 2020 election. The uh, herring. And uh, an attorney for Powell did not provide comment for this story from CNN. Another recent court filing in a related case notes uh, that uh, Herring's father, OAN founder Robert Herring, later sent the same or the similar spreadsheet, supposedly with the passwords in it from Smartmatic, to MyPillow CEO Mike Lindell who has championed false claims that Smartmatic and Dominion rigged the 2020 election. The filing from the uh, ex-Dominion employee, from an ex-Dominion employee, says Robert Herring forwarded an email to Lindell that originated from his son Charles and that it contained, quote, password information for employees of several voting system vendors. The filing from a defamation case against Lindell said that Charles Herring, that's the son, emailed those materials to Lindell in April of 22. An attorney for Lindell did not respond to CNN for comment. The network, the two Herrings, and some of their on-air personalities are also being sued for defamation by Dominion. OAN settled a defamation lawsuit in September with one former Dominion executive, guy by the name of Eric Coomer, whose case revealed how the network worked closely with Sidney Powell and others to lie about the election. In the months following the election, I remember very well how folks were making the case to me at the time that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. And they claimed part of their evidence was that Coomer, this former Dominion executive was showing up, had showed up in a chat room somewhere to claim that Dominion was stealing the election somehow for Democrats or some such nonsense that none of the folks ever making that claim actually had any evidence to support. And believe me, I tried to track down all of the claims that were made by folks after the 2020 election, because frankly, I do not trust voting machine companies or election officials or anyone else when it comes to election. I don't I don't believe that our elections are built on trust. They're built on oversight. And these companies do make it very hard. Their their systems make it very hard for the public to oversee election results. So, you know, If there's evidence, I'm happy to look at it, but I haven't seen any that support the claims being made by Trump in 2020. But in every instance, you know, I tried to dig into them and eventually you find there's no evidence there. It's just these folks 
citing a claim that they heard from someone somewhere, often on OAN or on Newsmax or on Fox News or in some random corner of the Internet. So anyway, thought you'd want to know about that. It's interesting. We'll see what pans out from it, if anything. I wanted to remind you that those suits are ongoing against, uh, you know, companies like OAN by the voting machine companies, Smartmatic and Dominion. Uh, we will, of course, continue to keep our eyes on that case and several others that are ongoing, including the case by real election integrity advocates, folks like Marilyn Marks and the Coalition for Good Governance, their long-running lawsuit against the state of Georgia filed long before these folks on the right decided to pretend that they gave a damn about election integrity and voting systems. That case has been before a federal judge in recent weeks in the uh, trial in a, this seven-year-old case as they seek to force Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to allow voters at the polls this year to vote on verifiable hand-marked paper ballots instead of the crappy, unverifiable, and hackable touchscreens, uh, touchscreen voting systems made by, in this case, Dominion, which uh, Raffensperger forces every voter in every county in Georgia to vote on, despite warnings from actual cybersecurity and voting systems experts that those systems are wildly dangerous, unreliable, and unverifiable. And they got real evidence to support it, not just pretend made up claims from a guy who sells pillows. <laughs> <sighs> of course, uh, Dominion and, and Smartmatic uh, know that, by the way, about their own voting systems, which is why I have been reporting on these systems and these companies for, yes, 20 years now. And those companies have never sued me once for defamation or for potentially engaging in criminal activity, for that matter. All right, let's take a quick break here, and we will be joined by legal journalist Chris Geidner on a remarkable decision this week by the U.S. <sighs> remarkable, I, I, it's troubling is probably a better word. Disturbing. Troubling, disturbing decision uh, this week by the U.S. 8th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals regarding the Voting Rights Act, one that, by the way, is so radical. Even the 5th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, the most radical right court of appeals in the country, it's an argument that even they have rejected, at least so far. Anyway, that's straight ahead on today's broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com. We fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. 
Last week on this program, I noted three stories uh, that I characterized at the time as good news regarding gerrymandering, specifically Republican gerrymanders in three separate states. I detailed a new motion filed at the Wisconsin State Supreme Court, which has a new liberal majority in place, seeking a new map for the Badger State's U.S. House districts after the state's high court late last year found that both the state's assembly and Senate were unlawfully gerrymandered by Republicans over the past decade in violation of Wisconsin's state constitution. The voters in this new motion seek a ruling that would require newly drawn U.S. House maps in time for the 2024 general election. In Louisiana, meanwhile, the Republican state legislature and governor down there finally approved a new map for that state's U.S. House districts under federal court order to do so, which includes a second black-majority voting district in a state where nearly a third of the population is African-American, but where just one district allowed black voters to select a Congress member of their choosing among Louisiana's six congressional districts until now. That new map drawn up in time for the 2024 elections came thanks to the federal court order in response to a lawsuit by voters arguing that the dilution of black voting power in the state was in violation of Section 2 of the landmark 1965 Voting Rights Act. And I also detailed the good news out of North Dakota, where a federal judge there, also in response to a lawsuit filed by voters under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, ordered new maps and new elections this year in two legislative districts in the state House and Senate, where state Republicans had gerrymandered two Native American tribes out of being able to select representatives of their own choosing. In that case, I noted that the court would likely be drawing up the new maps on its own because state lawmakers are appealing the ruling, citing a quietly, if quickly spreading, legal theory being forwarded by Republicans that voters and Private civil rights groups, organizations like the NAACP and ACLU may not sue to enforce Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, despite the hundreds of such cases that have successfully worked their way through the legal system over the years. And while it seems absurd on its face, the argument is that the Voting Rights Act, first adopted in 1965 and reauthorized and updated a number of times since then by Congress, does not actually include a private right of action for such plaintiffs, a private right to sue. That unbeknownst to pretty much everyone until apparently just last year, and despite years of precedent to the contrary, only the U.S. Attorney General may bring legal action to protect the right to vote under the Act. Well, who knew? Pretty much no one knew until a U.S. District Court judge appointed by Donald Trump tossed out a lawsuit filed last year in Arkansas on that exact basis. And while it seemed ridiculous at the time, and frankly it still does, that ruling by that Trump judge was actually upheld by a split decision of a three-judge panel on the overwhelmingly Republican Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals back in November. And now, on Tuesday, as legal journalist Chris Geidner detailed in his newsletter, the full 
Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals has allowed that three-judge panel's split decision, their ruling, to stand. Quote, upending federal voting rights law and making U.S. Supreme Court review of this matter now quite likely. I do know that, you know, we've all sort of been sucked into the Donald Trump legal vortex of late and, of course, for good reason. But this matter seems to be quietly gaining steam right now on the right as this matter almost certainly heads toward the corrupted and packed Republican supermajority at the U.S. Supreme Court. As Kate Riga noted in her coverage of Tuesday's 7-3 to decision by the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals to not rehear this case on bonk and to instead uphold the lower court rulings, the dissenters were unusually candid in their response, with one noting that the politics at play and the clear subtext that the appellate court's right-wing judges are operating under that the new supermajority at the Supreme Court might break with what its justices previously had determined in many other cases. Quote, for this court to proceed on a hunch that a reconstituted Supreme Court would repudiate years of precedential Voting Rights Act cases, wrote Judge Stephen Culleton for the dissenters, well, that, he said, would be too clever by half. But really, is it? Too clever by half, or is it just the right amount of clever in what could end up being another landmark blow to the enforcement of the Voting Rights Act on the heels of the court's 2013 ruling, which gutted Section 5 preclearance of the Voting Rights Act, its previous central provision that allowed voters to sue before racially discriminatory election laws could be enacted. Joining us now to discuss what I believe is a hugely important issue for democracy, despite being to date sort of hugely underreported across the media in general, is Chris Geidner, a veteran legal journalist whose work can be found via his Substack site called LawDork.com. Geidner previously served as legal editor at BuzzFeed News, editor-in-chief of the Ohio State Law Journal, and he has uh, contributed as well to The New York Times, MSNBC, The Appeal, and other outlets. Chris Geidner, longtime follower. Thank you for joining us today on the broadcast, sir. Hello. Delighted to have you here. We, we first we, we discussed this case uh, initially, I think, with our friend Mark Joseph Stern of Slate last year. It seemed at the time like proponents of this uh, no private right to sue idea under the Voting Rights Act. Uh, had finally found one judge, one single judge, a Trump appointee willing to go along with it, but that it was so absurd, Chris, it could not possibly move beyond that. But now it has been upheld essentially twice by the uh, by the appeals court. Yeah. When should we be worried that this is a, a very big deal and a very big threat to democracy? I mean, I, I think that we are right to be worried now. This is an appeals court. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's notable that the Fifth Circuit has not gone along with this, which obviously we all we all know for better or worse that the the Fifth Circuit over the especially mm -hmm. once uh, the Trump appointees got on it um, has been uh, the 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 clear winner of the most far right yeah. appeals court. Um, and the fact that that they haven't gone along with this is is sort of a, a sign of 
of how extreme the Eighth Circuit's ruling is. Mm -hmm. But when you then get a ruling like we got on Tuesday and the 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 vast majority of this Eighth Circuit court um, with with seven of the the judges mm -hmm. saying, yeah, we're, we're we're fine with. Now, two of those seven were judges on the original panel. Mm -hmm. So, but but five judges who weren't on the original panel were like, "Yeah, we're we're okay with with this this uh, new <laughs> way of running Section Two of the Voting Rights Act going forward." And, it, and it, that now is the law uh, in all of the the seven states states of the the Eighth Circuit, which goes all the way up to North Dakota and down to Arkansas. Which is just incredible. That's a lot of states. That's a yeah. lot of voters. I mean, even in this case, uh, even if the 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 court had decided, uh, yes, we agree with the three judge panel. We agree with the U.S. District Court. It seems to me that this is such a monumental decision will have such a monumental effect on the Voting Rights Act itself that the court would hear it, at least. In this case, they didn't even bother to hear it. They just said, we're, we're fine with what the three-judge panel, a split three-judge panel, by the way, two-to-one uh, ruling. We're just fine with, with what they said. Is that unusual with, that they didn't hear note, it? Let's note, yeah. the, the dissent was one of the Republican appointees. It's not like this was a, a two-one panel where the mm -hmm. dissent came from uh, Judge Kelly, the mm -hmm. the one Democrat on the Eighth Circuit. Mm -hmm. It was Chief Judge Levinsky Smith, the the uh, Republican appointee who was the dissent. So th this this came out of the the ruling last fall um, with a a two one split among Republican judges. So there was, I I think a a hope at least that that's what would have happened that the the eighth circuit would have been like okay the that panel decision went a little too far let's let's relook at this mm -hmm. um and, and the fact that they didn't do that i i think is another sign of something i've been writing about which is the fact that the the appeals courts are are able to uh be as out of control as they want mm. and then things go up to the Supreme Court and it's almost a win-win for the conservatives on the Supreme Court because if they reverse one of even two of every three ridiculous mm -hmm. decision, mm -hmm. they're able to sort of set themselves up as a moderating force that mm. that pulls back the extremes while they're still letting one of every three yeah. extreme rulings go through. So I, I, in some ways, I think this is, I, if I had to bet, I would still guess that a private right of action for Section 2 remains if mm -hmm. this goes up to the Supreme Court. But uh, it, it would be in that scenario where um, – this is one of those extreme cases that they're able to push back well, on because it is such an outlier. Chris, uh, if if you were to bet, would you have bet that it would have even made it this far? I mean, that's what troubles I, I me. I do not. Honestly, I, I get why, why you're asking that, but I don't bet on appeals courts anymore. Like, okay. I, I think that they're completely out of control. I think that, I mean, we've even seen scenarios on the Ninth Circuit where you get a panel that happens to be two Trump appointees and they write something that they know 
will not be the majority of the Ninth Circuit just to to get it out there. Um, and, and we 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 had that in a, a case this this past fall, um, where where a two judge panel wrote something that they knew they knew when they published it that this was not going to stand on the ninth circuit but they did it anyway because they were able to get it out and then when uh the idaho ag's office went up to the supreme court they pointed to that two judge panel as like a, a uh as proof that their argument had validity so are, are you making the case here, Chris, that at this point, the uh, I guess the appeals courts are so stacked or perhaps the U.S. Supreme Court is so stacked that the appeals court are saying, yeah, we're just going to go with what we feel and let the Supreme Court mop it up one way or another. Maybe we only have a one out of three chance of, uh, of, of getting it past them, but we'll take those odds. I think that we are seeing many judges, um, particularly those judges who uh, want to be on the short list for promotion if uh, Trump becomes president again, um, going all in on whatever whatever they think. And, and this is, I mean, this is something that I've been talking about mm -hmm. since the beginning of the, the Biden administration is that like one of the underlying bases for a legal system is stability. And when you have a legal system that is in such upheaval that lower courts have been told from the Supreme Court that no precedent is too sacred, we will overturn any precedent if we decide it should be overturned. What, what, why wouldn't a lower court judge who thinks, like, even if we mm -hmm. want to pretend for a second that there's good faith basis going on here, like, if they think that there's a chance that their opinion can lead to a revisiting of a precedent that they think is wrong, why wouldn't they go for it? Well, I, you know what? In this case, I mean, and I the answer is the rule of law, and they yeah. shouldn't. And that's up to the Supreme Court. And until the Supreme Court does it, they need to follow precedent. But that's not the world in which we're living. Clearly, it's not. And that's, you know, I, I, I understand that general thinking. But in this case, with the Voting Rights Act, which has been in court, you know, so many times in so many places and so many states and so many appellate courts and so many times at the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, there, there are hundreds of such cases that are reviewed over the past decade. How can it be? How could it possibly be that no judges until now, I mean, this is why this is so ridiculous to me, that no judges until now, including all of the justices on the Supreme Court who have reviewed all of the cases under Section 2 that have come before them, that none of them noticed until now this supposed deficiency uh, in the law or this mandate that only the federal government can sue to enforce the Voting Rights Act until now? A, how can that be? And I guess the better question is, how did the uh, the, the 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 U.S. District Judge and the three judge panel how did they justify such a seemingly absurd notion? I mean, they because they wanted to, and that that I mm. mean is both uh, the good <laughs> that's the real answer and the bad answer. Yeah, right. Um, because I, I mean, if you 
the the I mean, Judge Colton in in his dissent yesterday, again another Republican appointee, um, said the mistakes in this case were almost entirely judge driven. Um, this was a situation where the district court decided that there was a question about whether Section 2 allowed a private right of action mm -hmm. and then went a step further and decided it was jurisdictional, which meant that the case is just tossed out completely. And uh, that was sort of one of these these other areas is that they the judges in doing this have actually chosen the harder path. <laughs> like there were actually paths with which they could have taken this ruling, even if they wanted to address this Section 2 issue, without totally upending the case. Mm. And yet they chose the most extreme ruling in order to get us to this point we're at today, because there, there was this argument in the original case that was brought in Arkansas, they only... Uh, brought it based on Section 2. Sometimes when people bring these lawsuits, they also bring them under Section 83, 1983, mm -hmm. which is the federal law that allows you to sue for a civil rights violation. Mm -hmm. um, we often hear about these in, in uh, police brutality or prison cases, mm -hmm. um, 1983 action. Mm -hmm. uh, but you can also use it here. And oftentimes people will bring lawsuits that are both Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act in 1983. They didn't do that here, but they didn't do so because, as you've said multiple times, this is well established over more than half a century that you can use Section 2 as to bring a private right of action. And and as I understand it, therefore, the original lawsuit here, uh, and frankly, I'm not even sure about the details of this case in Arkansas, to be frank, because it was essentially thrown out. The merits were never even reviewed, right. as I understand it. The judge just decided that because the plaintiffs had no standing here to bring the suit, he just tossed it out. Is that right? That is correct. So in the meantime, uh, Kate Riga, in her coverage over at TPM, she cites an expert in, in her report who said that of the over 200 redistricting cases his organization is tracking following the most recent uh, election cycle alone, the Department of Justice is only involved in three of those 200 cases and that's under a Democratic administration. Joe Biden, if the anti-voting rights Republicans... Uh, get the ruling that they seek from the high court here, uh, I, essentially, I guess we would see zero such cases, no enforcement of the Voting Rights Act under a Republican administration, no? Effectively pretty much killing the entire act at that point? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, we, we've already been working for the past decade without Section 5's preclearance provision mm -hmm. uh, that Shelby County uh, got rid of. Mm -hmm. And since then, that has made Section 2 much more important. These vote dilution claims have uh, been front and center. And obviously, just last term at the Supreme Court, the majority upheld uh, those provisions and the, the current tests that we use to look at those challenges. And so, I mean, this is the sort of situation where, um, yeah, it, it would totally upend things and it would upend things in a way that like 
the Supreme Court just heard a case brought right. by private parties, mm -hmm. and they didn't question this. So it, it it is in some ways like if we lived in a normal world, I would say <laughs> this is absurdly arrogant judges who the Supreme Court is going to like do a summary reversal and say just cite to last term's case mm -hmm. and say look like we 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 just said section two is fine in a case brought by a private plaintiff mm -hmm. so get with it and consider this case but unfortunately e even if they don't take the case and do reverse or do something quick i still think it's going to end up being like a year of briefing before we and and after that means for a year, those what is it eight states that yeah, I mean, the... I guess i I haven't like gamed it out. yeah, um, I mean, I guess what we could see is a motion to stay these orders that goes up on the shadow docket. Well, by the challengers, so yeah. like by by the the good parties, file a motion at the Supreme Court. Now that would be then an aggressive use of the shadow docket yeah. for good, yeah, good. Um, in which we're trying to get them to rule, essentially to send a message to the Eighth Circuit that they screwed up. And that could then allow some revisiting of this and at least would not make it apply to other states and other cases while this is then uh, being considered at the Supreme well, Court. Well, but because the Arkansas legislature wouldn't be uh, addressed during that time. Well, and, and that's a, another matter here. If this moves forward as uh, the uh, these Republicans in Arkansas hope, and apparently, as these Republicans on the Eighth Circuit Court seem to hope, uh, not only would that uh, just, you know, cripple the notion of bringing cases under Section 2, but we've got all of these other cases. You mentioned that decision just last June. Uh, the Louisiana case that I mentioned during the intro where the uh, state was forced under the Voting Rights Act uh, a lawsuit by a private plaintiff, to add an additional majority-minority U.S. House district in Louisiana, that came about after a similar ruling was affirmed by the Supreme Court just last June. It was a very encouraging and surprising 5-4 to four, uh, decision. Um, but it was on the basis of that case in Alabama that they were forced to add this district down in Louisiana. There are cases like this all over the country brought by private plaintiffs if this moved forward as these Republicans seem to want it to, what would that mean for all of these voting rights cases that have already I mean, been decided? Thus far, well, thus far, nobody has agreed with the Eighth Circuit. So thus far and essentially until there's a Supreme Court ruling affirming the Eighth Circuit, unless that were to happen, the, the, the Eighth Circuit applies in those seven states and that's it and thus far we've seen nothing from like either the fifth or the eleven circuits which are two of the the most conservative mm -hmm. circuits mm -hmm. uh to reach similar conclusion and those are basically the the southern states mm -hmm. from the eleventh circuit is like mainly florida and the fifth circuit is centered around texas but also goes over to to um 
um, Mississippi and Louisiana, right. I believe. Yeah, yeah. But the the Eleventh Circuit is is Florida and Alabama, right? And, uh, Georgia. Georgia. Yeah. And so, I mean, as of now, those are still under the those two hundred cases that you mentioned. Right. Principle that there is a private right of action, and no court has been like i think the eighth circuit makes a good point thus far um now that of course could could change uh at any given day but thus far it hasn't and um i i i do think that this is a scenario where the supreme court is um is going to have to make a decision most likely because they're not going to allow this to stand as a seven state rule that that section two can only be enforced. So they'll, by the they'll either kill it or they'll require it for the entire country. Normally, you know, and I've been sort of trying to ignore this case, but uh, the Eighth Circuit is making it very difficult. Yeah, they, I was very hopeful that yeah. we would have gotten on bond review. Yep. Um, and and that should have shut it down, but apparently not. So uh, on it yeah, goes. Yeah, because I mean, when you do on bank review, you also you generally um, different appeals courts have different rules, but you vacate, you get rid of the panel opinion mm-hmm. while you're considering the on bank mm-hmm. review, and so that would have meant like even if the Eighth Circuit then heard on bank review, took additional briefing, took additional arguments, and took a year to. Um, come up with a ruling during mm-hmm. that time, we would be back to the old system yep. where title where where section two is allowed. Yep. But they didn't do that. So that sort of speeds up the need to address this this issue. Yeah. And and uh, potentially quickly here, uh, Chris, yep. uh, we will continue to follow this, of course. But while I have you here, uh, as, as someone who I know has been following this case as well, it's been more than three weeks now since the <sighs> D.C. Court of you know where I'm going here since the yep. D.C. Court of Appeals heard Donald Trump's ridiculous immunity claims, wherein his attorneys argued to a three judge panel on that court that presidents are entirely immune from any criminal charges for Anything they do while serving as president, including, as his attorneys noted during the hearing, ordering that his or her political enemies be murdered by SEAL Team 6. Now, most folks believe a ruling was going to come from that panel very quickly after the court took it up on an emergency basis, seemed to be moving quickly and very skeptically of Trump's argument during uh, oral argument. And yet with special counsel Jack Smith's trial now against Trump for his various attempts to steal the 2020 election now on hold pending a ruling in this matter. Do you have any idea? I realize it's just speculation, but any speculation, what could possibly be holding up a ruling at the DC court of appeals at this point? I mean, at, at this point, I mean, I thought that the original question was whether it was going, the arguments I think were on a Wednesday. And I thought, after arguments, the question was, would we get a very brief ruling on Friday, right. like two days later, right. that resolved it such that there could be further appeals while like opinions followed over the next like three days mm-hmm. or whether it would be the next Friday. So it would yep. be all in a, a, a bow and ready for further review. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that we're now past the, the third Friday yep. and 
quickly approaching a, a month is, I mean, I, I wrote over the weekend, like it is, it is a, a, I forget the words I wrote, so I can't quote myself. Uh, but th- it is a dereliction of duty. It is it is a failure on the DC Circuit's part. Um, they, I mean, if you remember back in December, Jack Smith had asked the Supreme Court to skip over the DC Circuit on this mm-hmm. so that it could be resolved definitively at the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, they didn't give reasons, but at that point, the DC Circuit had set this really quick timeline, mm-hmm. and so the D- the Supreme Court court denied the request to skip over the dc circuit and i think a lot of us were like yeah if arguments are in the eighth at that point like we're talking about maybe a week difference Uh um and but now i I, like i i think that obviously the timing is based on uh the fact that there is either some disagreement and people are going back and forth with majority opinions and dissent, or they are really trying to get down to the nitty gritty to be able to get a unanimous decision. That was a, um, a three judge panel. But even with, at that, yeah. we're kind of past when I would have thought like the, the, the explanation for that is the difference between 10 days and 17 days. Um, and but that, it, I mean, at this point, I, I honestly can't tell you why. Well, and it's uh, the three judge panel is uh, two Biden appointees, I believe, and one George H.W. Bush. Yeah, Judge appointee. Karen Henderson. Yeah. But she she was she was the Republican appointee, and she mm-hmm. was skeptical. Yeah. She she asked a lot of questions. Now there there are some some questions around the edge about how you implement this, whether there are exceptions, how you draw the exceptions. Um, the, the language before that's been used is about uh, that basically there's immunity from anything within the outer perimeter of the president's duties while they're in office um, and related to civil liability, so private lawsuits. Um, and so there could be some issues about like, do we apply that to um, to these criminal cases? And does that, how do we actually apply that to Trump's case? And are we going to resolve that at the circuit court level? Or do we send it back to the district court and have them resolve it in light of this test that we're putting forward? Mm-hmm. Um, but those are all questions that like, they kind of knew going into arguments were the issues. Right. And so I'm, I like, again, like that's the difference between uh, a three and 10 day or maybe a 10 and 17 day turnaround. Well, that's, it, you know, it's not, uh, we're, we're past when I would have thought those questions could have been resolved by three adults sitting in a room. I know. And, and that's why in one sense, I think your dereliction of duty argument is sort of the best case scenario. I hope that's what it is. Uh, I, I fear the fact that, I mean, they knew, they knew, you know, just, just by virtue of how quickly they took up this case, they knew the importance of, uh, of speed here so that there could be a trial so that voters could know mm-hmm. whether Donald Trump is a felon or not a felon, uh, you know, before voting in November, much less uh, before the, uh, the, the Republican convention in July. They know the need for speed here, and yet... Something's going on, it certainly seems. Um, and I guess we can only speculate, 
let's just hope it's dereliction of duty. That's the best case scenario. Chris, I got to get out. Uh, Chris Geidner um, is uh, the uh, editor, writer, uh, publisher of Law. All of the above. All of the above <laughs> at lawdork.com. A great read. He's also a great follow on Twitter. Yes, we still call it Twitter. You can find him at Chris Geidner there and at Law Dork News. Great having you on the show, Chris. Hope you don't mind if we uh, bother you again in the very near future. Thanks a lot, Brad. You bet. Thank you. All right. He is adorkable. Isn't he? <laughs> yes, uh, and super smart. Yes, he is. You know, we have been waiting this week, <laughs> every day. It's been very difficult to plan these shows because I'm assuming that we're going to get a decision, a ruling in the New York fraud case from Any minute now. Judge Arthur Engoron. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming that we're going to get a decision. Any minute now in the uh, presidential immunity case from the D.C. Court of Appeals, both of them will be, I suspect, huge news no matter how it goes. I kind of been thinking, oh, man, this is going to come right in the middle, smack dab in the middle while we're doing the show this <laughs> yep, week. Yeah, it could come at any moment. Uh, so far, it hasn't. We'll see if our luck holds out one yep. way or another. All right, we have to get out. Uh, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyne, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's always appreciated and an honor. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com, where we have been bradblogging now for 20 years. And I'm exhausted. <laughs> uh, that is all thanks to uh, folks like you, yes, you, who hit one of those donate buttons to help us stay on your public airwaves and keep muckraking and troublemaking at bradblog.com. If you haven't uh, donated lately or ever, there is no better time than now to celebrate 20 years of the Brad Blog. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com on the Facebooks, Mastodons, and sites still known as Twitter. You'll find me at the Brad Blog. See you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. You're listening to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported. Thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate.